You know, that is the purpose of all of existence, to bring glory and honor to the Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So here last week, you know, we were in uh, the 28th chapter of Ezekiel, writing as he does, uh, proclaiming the Word of God in the 6th century B.C., and we saw how this text, as well as the Isaiah text, chapter 14, fit perfectly into the first chapter of Genesis between verses 1 and 2 of Genesis chapter 1. And so let's continue this morning, looking again at Ezekiel 28, beginning in verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You are the signet or model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty, you were in Eden, the garden of God, very precious. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardis, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted with gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mount of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire." Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries, so I brought fire out from your midst, and it consumed you. And I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. The man was tutored until he was 16 by Aristotle. When his father was murdered, he took over his army. And by age 30, he had built an empire that was larger than any empire known on the face of the earth. It stretched from Greece to the Himalayas. He was considered um, arguably the greatest military mind that ever lived. And yet when Alexander the Great came to Corinth, he was determined to see one man, Diogenes. When asked why, he said, because Diogenes, in my opinion, is among the greatest men ever born. And so when he got to that city, Alexander the Great, with all of his entourage, went to find Diogenes, and they found him where he lived in a big clay vessel. He lived in a pot. And they found him sunbathing on top of it. And Alexander the Great came to Diogenes and said, What can I do to serve you? You know what Diogenes said to him? Get out of my sunlight. <laughs> and when all of the servants of Alexander heard this, they were incensed. 
Who is this wacko to tell the great Alexander such things? And they began to berate him. And when Alexander heard it, he replied, If I were not Alexander, I would wish to be Diogenes because he understands the limits of power. One day, Diogenes was standing in front of a marble statue, and he was begging. And people watched him and thought, he's crazy. He's begging before a statue. And they said to him, why are you begging before a statue? And Diogenes said, I'm practicing the art of rejection. Last week, we talked about Lucifer who never practiced the art of rejection. He traded in the sin of pride. And we noted from Scripture that when God created Lucifer, he created him the most beautiful, the most wise, the most glorious being that he ever made. Now think of that. The Bible indicates that God created a a panoply of angels, an array of angels, And above all of these angels, he placed one who was the most glorious, the most beautiful, the most wise. He had dominion over all of creation, did Lucifer. And yet for Lucifer, that wasn't enough. He wanted more. You know, pride takes a lot of different shapes. One time Diogenes went to his adversary Plato Now, Plato lived in some splendor, and Diogenes lived in scarcity. And so when Diogenes got to Plato's house and saw the elaborate carpets on the floor, he took his dirty feet and began to rub them on Plato's carpets, saying, I rub my feet on the pride of Plato. You know what Plato said to him? In all of your pride... You do that to what you call my pride. You see, pride takes different forms. You can be arrogantly proud, or you can be falsely humble in your pride. So let's go back to this text. Ezekiel chapter 28. In the first 10 verses, we find that God is addressing through the prophet Ezekiel a man by the name of the Prince of Tyre. Now, Tyre was a city on the Mediterranean, and historically, according to secular historians as well as biblical, there was a Prince of Tyre. And so you can read in those first 10 verses what God says to this Prince of Tyre. And it's not pretty. But then in verse 11, God changes the focus from one who's called the Prince of Tyre to one who's called the King of Tyre. And in all of human history, in all of the annals of human history, there has never been a man or a woman with that title, the King of Tyre. Tyre never had a king. And when you look at what God says to this one called the King of Tyre, you see his description you quickly are able to assess the fact that he's not talking to a human being. Listen to what he says. You are the model or the signet of my perfection. You are full of wisdom. 
You are glorious in beauty. As we noted last week, there's no one that fits that description, even Donald Trump. God's not addressing a man here or a woman. He's addressing Lucifer, one he's calling here the king of Tyre. And listen to what he says to him. I placed you, verse 14, I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. Now, the mountain of God in biblical terms always describes the same thing, the very presence of God. So what God is saying is, I elevated you, Lucifer, the bearer of light, the greatest of all angels. I placed you in a position above all of the rest of creation. And I gave you a particular role. And this is the role we looked at last week. I gave you the role as king. You were dominion. You had dominion over all of my creation. But I said last week that that was only one of his roles. I said he had two other roles. Not only was he a king, but he was a priest and a prophet. And somebody came to me after this service and said, in essence, prove it. And I said, come next week. So look at verse 14, if you've got your Bibles. The Lord says, you were anointed guardian cherub. Now that's what the English translation says. You know what the Hebrew says? It's fuller than that. He says, I anointed you the cherub that covers. And then the French translation of the Hebrew text is even fuller. It says, you were the protecting cherub with spread out wings. You know what God's talking about there? You were the guardian cherub. The cherub that covers. The cherub that has, as it were, spread out wings. If you were here six years ago, you know we studied through uh, ten weeks or more the tabernacle of God. Do you remember when God comes to uh, Moses in the desert and he said, I want to build a dwelling place for me on earth. And it's going to be called a tabernacle and it's going to be in your midst and it's going to go where you go and you're going to go where I tell you to go. And so God gives these elaborate directions. Basically, it's a tent. And in that tent, there are seven pieces of furniture that are essential to understanding two things. The presence of God and the character of God. And then secondly, the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you want to know in greater detail who Jesus is and why he came and who he is now, look at the tabernacle furniture and you will see in each piece different functions, roles, offices that Jesus holds. Now among all of those pieces of furniture, there was one piece that was more important than any other. The Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, a box made of wood, overlaid with gold, inside the box, gold, and on top of that box, there was what was called a kafar. The kafar was the covering. It was known as the seat of mercy or mercy seat. And over that mercy seat, over that kafar, over that covering were 
two wings made of gold that symbolize the cherub or the seraphim. And the place was so important, so holy, that this was the place that God said, I will meet my people. Once a year, the great high priest will go behind the veil, take the blood of the sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice, and there once a year he will sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. There was no more profoundly important place in the people of God's life and history than the kafar, the covering. That was the place where God forgave sin. That was the place atonement was made. And so listen to what God says to Lucifer. You were my appointed guardian cherub. You were the one who covers. In other words, I established you as my priest. You were the intermediary between me, God, and all that I created. Now think of what that means. In the book of Revelation, it says that when we get into the presence of God, we will find incredible worship. You say, what's that mean? It means singing, it means music, it means prayer, it means glorious worship better than anything we've ever known. And you know who leads that worship? The cherubim, the cherubim. They are the ones who receive the praises of the people for God and they deliver those praises to God. And they're also the ones who receive all of the petitions of the people of God and they deliver them to God. They are the intermediaries. They're the ones who receive the praise and petitions of men and women and then they present them to the Lord. And here in Ezekiel chapter 28, the Lord tells us that this one Lucifer, before God formed the heavens and the earth, before Adam and Eve, before time, God established one being, Lucifer, who was not only king with dominion over all that he created, but he was the intermediary, the priest between God and all that he created. And what does he do? He says in his heart, I will make myself like the Most High. He says, I'll usurp the position of God. You say, how did it happen? How did wickedness find its home in Lucifer's heart? Don't ask me. Let's ask the prophet. He tells us. Let's dig in. First of all, notice the origin of evil. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this is the only place in Scripture, this is the only verse in Scripture that gives us the origin of evil. Every other verse that relates to this is commentary on this verse. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, verse or question 14, asks this. What is sin? Sin is the lack of conformity to 
or transgression of the law of God. The Heidelberg Catechism, question number three asks, where do you learn of your sin and its wretched consequences? The answer, the law of God. But you see, those questions and answers only beg a question. Where did it come from? Where does, where does sin originate? Where did wickedness come from? Now, if you ask many Christians or people that know the Scriptures, they'll turn to Genesis chapter 3, and they'll look at that choice that God gave Adam and Eve. But if you go to Genesis 3, you don't go back far enough. You're in the middle of the game. Where is sin first conceived? Ezekiel 28, verse 15 you were blameless in all of your ways from the day you were created until iniquity was found in you. What's the origin of evil? Where does sin originate? It originates in the heart of this being, Lucifer. Second, notice the administration of evil. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. Now, the Hebrew elaborates on this. It says this, By the multitude of your trade, they, were filled, they filled your midst with violence, and you sinned. Now, the word here that we have to wonder about is the word trade. What's that mean? What's it mean through your widespread trade or through the multitude of your trade? Well, every Hebrew would know the meaning of that word. And actually, it's a meaning that has come even into our own culture. Have you ever heard someone say that that person trades in something? For instance, somebody said, that judge, that judge trades in favors. Now, what's that mean? That means the judge uses his position for his own gain. Right? Remember the story Jesus told about a man who was going to be fired? And he knew if he lost the job, he'd lose his, his income, he'd lose his ability to live. And so what's he do? He contacts every one of those who owes his boss a debt. And he says to them, you know, your debt is this, but we'll make it this. You owe a million I'll make you a deal. How about a quarter mil? And he contacts everyone. And two results, two things result. One is they're happy with the boss. And the other result is he gets all the money. And Jesus said, that's a shrewd man. How, why is he shrewd? Or how is he shrewd? Because he's trading his position. He's trading in things that are really not his. But he's trading on the authority and the place that he has in the business structure. They think he's working for the owner when in reality he's working for himself. Now that's exactly what God is saying to Lucifer. Lucifer is trading in the glory of God. Everything that God dispensed to his creation would flow through Lucifer. 
Everything from the creation back to God would throw, flow through Lucifer. But instead of being a conduit, Lucifer became a cul-de-sac. He began to say to himself, isn't there something in me that deserves what God is receiving? Ladies and gentlemen, that is all around us today. And most of us don't have to go further than our own mirror to see it. Isn't there something in me that deserves the benefits that God himself deserves? Now think of the implication of that. I've said it before. I'll say it again, not just because I want to repeat myself, because I think it's very true. The more God's given you, the more of a spiritual deficit you operate out of. The more you have, the more you run a risk of saying to yourself, by my power and my might, I have these things. So if you're good looking, it's a deficit. If you're smart, it's a deficit. If you're popular, it's a deficit. If you're in a position of power, it's a deficit. Spiritually, it's a deficit. Because the spirit of Lucifer is alive. Not just in him, but in me. Do you know what I'm talking about? Lucifer does. He begins to steal what is intended to flow to us from God. And he steals what we desire to give to God. And that behavior is all over the place. And that attests to one simple truth. That Lucifer never changes his desires or his tactics. And then third, notice the product of evil. By the multitude of your iniquities in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. The passage Tim read, read earlier, 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul gives the qualifications for an elder or a bishop. The word is episcopus in Greek. It's the word from which we get the word episcopal. It means to oversee. And I can tell you, in my experience, every elder that has ever been ordained at Hebron Church, almost everyone has said something like me, something like this to me, I don't deserve this. I mean, when you read those qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 to 6, you say to yourself, ooh, I'm not sure I want this office. I'm not sure I qualify. And the reason is the bar is high. It's another piece of the law that is impossible for us to keep unless the Holy Spirit is living in us and we're depending upon him every moment of every day. But notice what Paul says in verse 6. This overseer must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Now what's he talking about? He's saying that there's a danger in investing spiritual authority into a novice Christian. Why? Because the Christian will begin to think that the glory due to God is really due to himself. That's what Paul's saying here. Don't ordain 
new believers, or they may falsely believe that the glory and the, and the praise and the honor of the position goes to them rather than God. John Milton, in his book Paradise Lost, speaks of a bishop who's a blind mouth. A blind mouth. And, and you think, well, he's mixed his metaphors until you begin to unpack what he means. An overseer literally means one who oversees or looks over the flock of God. That's his job. But what primary function does every overseer have? That is to feed the people of God. And so what Milton is saying is, there are those who are leaders in the church, there are those who are pastors and teachers, there are those who are overseers who don't look out for anyone but themselves, and they only feed themselves and no one else. They become blind mouths. Does that sound familiar to you? It's exactly what God says about Lucifer. He was not only a prophet, or not only a king and a priest, he was a prophet of God. He was the one that God had established to deliver his message through to his creation. And yet Lucifer determines to feed only himself. Someone has said there are churches today where the people have distended bellies. They look well fed, but when you really get to know them, they're starving to death spiritually. Why? Because Satan's greatest attack against the bride of Christ is to stop the flow of God's nourishment to his people. And you know where you see it most often. You see it in the pulpit. Where instead of delivering the things of God to the people of God, including the preacher himself, you get empty rhetoric and human words and human thoughts and feelings, and the people are starving to death. And that, ladies and gentlemen, must be filed under the sin of Lucifer. And then fourth and finally, notice the penalty of evil. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, a guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Do you see this? This is exactly what God will do in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. When they sin and he pronounces judgment, he'll cast them out of the garden. Where did sin come from? The heart of Lucifer. How did it get there? Spontaneous combustion. And what is God's response to that? To cast him down. In other words, Satan, Lucifer, who becomes Satan after God reforms what he created, he loses every office. God drives him out. No longer is Lucifer the prophet of God. Instead, he becomes an unholy mouthpiece who speaks lies instead of truth. Now, he continues to operate as though he were the prophet of God, but he's a liar. And the Bible says we must discern whether it's his voice he's speaking or God's. He loses his status as priest. He becomes so proud and puffed up, he no longer stands between God and his creation. And yet he masquerades as a, an angel of light. 
he not only loses his status as, as priest and prophet, he loses his status as king by polluting his rule and believing that what really belongs to God belongs to him. You know where you see that most clearly? In his temptation of Jesus in the wilderness in Luke chapter 4. But I want you to notice something. God casts him down, but he doesn't send him into hell. He promises to do that. He declares that that's the sentence he will exact against this one Lucifer, and yet his interment in hell has not yet begun. He's driven from the presence of God. He's cast down, but he's not destroyed. He still retains power. He's still, and we all know that. We know it intellectually, and we know it experientially. He still believes he rules instead of God. He still believes that he can bring order out of all of the chaos. He still believes that he can thwart the devotion of men and women and all of creation to God. And so you ask yourself, how can God allow this? How can God allow this active rebellion against his holiness? Why doesn't God just send him to hell and be done with it? Why does God permit Lucifer, Satan, to continue to do the acts of pride and disobedience that he engaged in before time began? You know something? Those are all very good questions. We'll begin to answer them next week. But until then, think about what Paul says in Romans 9, 21. Has the potter no right over the clay? Think about that. Amen.